Peace, grace, this is Pastor Colton Lott from First Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, El Reno. We have the privilege of building Christian community in El Reno for the world. And so if you care about building Christian community or El Reno or the world, we're glad you're listening to this podcast. If you want to help contribute to the gospel work of this congregation, please visit our website, fcclreno.org, and go to the Give Online tab. And now, here's the sermon for the week. This morning, we continue our worship series on the generational cohorts of the church, and I'm still splitting my sermon time as best as I can uh, to detail that generation and generational change more broadly before a shorter sermon on the scripture of the day. Over these last weeks, we have discussed how generational cohorts in the 20 and the 21st century are primarily driven by technological change. As psychologist Jean Twinge, PhD, writes in her good book, uh, Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Zs, Millennials, Gen Xers, Boomers in Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future, uh, these technological shifts create two traits which seem self-evident on the face, uh, but are, are good to have spelled out. And these two traits increase more to more with each generation. And those two traits are individualism and a slow life strategy. Now, that's important to note. Neither of these are bad, nor are they good. They just are. It's just kind of the water we swim in. The water is more blue. The water is more individualistic. And it is more, and it's a slower lifespan, or a slower life strategy. There are adaptions to the world as we live in it. Now, we spoke last week about individualism, especially around Gen X. Today, as we approach the millennials, we'll talk about the slow life strategy, these two daughters of technological change. Functionally, what a slow life strategy is based on is just the anticipation of a longer lifespan. If you'll remember a few weeks ago, I mentioned that every silent generation member, those born between 25 and 45, uh, 1945, none of them expected to live as long as they did. Now, longevity for my generation is just more of a given. And so our lives have been cultivated differently under the assumption that we'll hit 75 or 80, presuming general, general genetics and good medical care. That slower life strategy means that education in adolescence takes longer. There's a defined period that we call young adulthood. Marriage and children come later, and retirement is pushed back. Again, this is broad strokes, generational differences. It will not fit everyone. Um, And with this generation, we see some important ways that our church is a different uh, has more outliers than normal people in some important ways. Millennials were born between 1980 or 81, and their generation ends in 1994 or 1996. I think the latter date is more accurate based on every uh, person I know born between 95 and 96 saying that they are absolutely 100% a millennial. Millennials were born mostly to baby boomers. In my family, my mom was a boomer born in 63. My dad is an Xer born in 68. And I was born in the fourth quarter of the millennial generation, so to speak. 
If you'll remember, many of those boomer families grew up in family or grew up with three or four siblings. Kelsey's parents are both, both her mom and her dad, one of four. My father is the youngest of four. And those boomers overwhelmingly had fewer children than they grew up with. Due to the pill coming on uh, to the scene in 1960, legalized abortion in 1973, the millennials were the most planned, most wanted generation of kids in American history. However, even though those fa- there were fewer of us in our families, there were a lot of boomers having those fewer wanted children. And now that some of those boomers have aged out of life, millennials are now the largest generation alive today. As Twinge writes, boomers who often experienced a harsh discipline when they were children wanted a warmer, more supportive relationship with their own children. So millennials are the generation of participation trophies and grade inflation, an emphasis on high self-esteem, an emphasis on self-confidence. Just be yourself. Believe in yourself. And overall, unconditional positive regard. You're special. They grew up with more intensive parenting and intensive grandparenting. Unlike those latchkey children of Gen X, there was very little unsupervised or unprogrammed time. Unsurprisingly, the millennials have become the most educated generation in American history. Over two-thirds of millennials have spent at least one full year in college. Almost one in two millennial women have a bachelor's degree, and more than one out of three millennials have a collegiate degree overall, which is compared to only one in four Gen Xers. When millennials will tell you that it feels like we were forced to go to college, they're not kidding. We were all on the college path. Subsequently, more education delayed marriage and childbearing. This will come as a shock to many of you. Did you know I got married earlier than the average millennial man? The the average age of first marriage for a millennial man is 30 years of age. For women, it's 28 if you'll remember, the silent generation, overwhelmingly our grandparents, the average age for a woman was right at 20. Ha- almost half of silent generation women were married in their teenage years. Women with a college degree have often waited until their early 30s to have children, but millennial women, even without a college degree, waited until 23 on average to have their first child. I told you earlier that we start seeing some divergences between general culture and our church, and that really becomes clear with millennials. And those are two big ways. The first is that we have millennial families who have many more children compared to the average. The birth rate, or the number of children that a woman will have on average, was at 1.95 in 2010 in this country, when 25 to 34-year-olds all became millennials. And that dropped to 1.65 in 2021 when we solely comprised that cohort. One or two is expected. Three or four is not typical in this generation. And one way that this church is unique is that we have at least five families with three or more children. That is much more of what you would see in the 1960s than in the 2020s church. And it's why we uniquely have large children and youth programming 
especially based on the number of adults in the church. This isn't good. This isn't bad. It just is. We love our large families. Don't get me wrong. I just want to point out there are ways in which there are a few things that are a little different. The second is that you have millennials at all in church. Each generation is successively less religious, but there is a significant difference between Gen X and millennials. Millennials were raised by boomers, overwhelmingly, who started the shift away from organized religion, were less likely to go to church in the first place as a cohort. The millennials are. One out of three millennial college students reported never attending a religious service in their life. Pew Research Center asked religiously unaffiliated Americans why they chose not to identify with religion. Six in ten said, I question a lot of religious teachings. Five in ten said, I don't like the position churches take on social or political issues. And four in ten said, I just don't like religious organizations. In a 2012 survey of 18 to 24-year-olds, which would have been me, I was in college from 2011 to 2015, Two out of three said that Christianity was anti-gay, and almost all of those two out of three believed that it was therefore judgmental or hypocritical. In a 2019 study, six out of ten millennials thought that religious people were less tolerant than other types of people. Now, I don't say this to try to stir us to generational conflict this morning. I know that a lot of us have some strong opinions on um, religious teachings, social political issues in the church, religious organizations, and the status of LGBTQ plus people in the life of the church. But when you add all of that conflict together and then put in the public uncoverings of child molestation or sexual assault that has often been covered up, it means that only 44% of millennials identify as Christian at all, and approximately 43% of millennials, almost the same number, identify as none, atheist, or agnostic. The church in American life generally reflected the culture in, 20, in the 20th century. But with the shift away from organized religion, church life will now be the exception, not the norm. And if an intergenerational church has millennial members like ours does, it will be weird. The millennials are a large generation in a similar vein to the boomers, and if the trajectory of the boomers give us some clues, then we can assume that as the boomers retire and recede over this decade, millennials will most likely leapfrog Gen Xers and begin leading those institutions that have been stewarded for the last 40 years by baby boomers, much like someone you know. That's why the work we're doing here in building intergenerational community is so important. Because in a culture that is primed for conflict, we have already built the inroads to community. And it is likely that the 2020, uh, th this decade, will have some intense social change and upheaval. Which means that it will be a time for us to demonstrate the best of who we are and what we have been cultivating here as an intergenerational church. It is cliched, but it is still true. Our greatest challenges lie before us, but so do our greatest opportunities.
Our scripture this morning comes from Isaiah 5, verse 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will not make it a waste. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and it shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed, righteousness, but heard a cry. And God had blessings to the readings of these words in every time and in every place. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you seeking your word for this generation just as you gave it to Isaiah for that generation. May we be transformed. May we be more loving, more merciful, and more just. Amen. As I have told you several times, I am a good token millennial. I'm going to say that a few times today. Here's the first fight I knew about that happened at churches. Music. Even as we were sitting here listening to Hosanna, I thought, well, something tells me in the line I just might get a comment about how there's no good old traditional music today. And I'm primed for this because I grew up in a time in the 90s or early 2000s which are lovingly referred to by those in the church business as the era of the worship wars. Now, I want you to note that I grew up with praise music, which really wasn't music that millennials had written or were playing. This was about boomers and especially Gen Xers and their conflict with silent and greatest generations around praise music. We were still too young, just by the way. Indeed, if you're under the age of 60 or 65, praise music is yours. That's your invention. It's not just young people. It is the majority of people alive today, which is why I could see some of you in the back row who might be Generation X and a baby boomer couple who are singing along with Hosanna. One of the major complaints about praise music that has persisted over the last 50 years, is that the lyrics are too simple. It has easy choruses. We used to call them 7-Elevens, uh, or at least that's what the adults around me would call them. And of course, I was a good little parrot, so I called them that too, which means that you sang seven words 11 times. <laughs> and they were criticized for not saying anything much deeper than, God is love and God loves you. 
Another criticism of this music is that they leaned into Jesus is my boyfriend tropes because of their tendency to make Jesus sound like the object of religious affection. How he loves, that we sang this morning is a prime example. He is jealous for me. Sounds like you could have a crooner come out and be talking about something different. Now, I grew up in a traditional music church, and my preference actually is traditional music. And I used to think these criticisms were correct, and especially when I was growing up, I was snide about praise music. But my heart has softened, as everyone will tell you. Because despite claims otherwise, every generation has written new music. And praise music is just as faithful, just as biblical as any other style of music. I mean, look at, look at Isaiah. Isaiah this morning talk, is talking about a song, a love song. You want to talk about boyfriend Jesus? He starts out saying he's writing a love song. This scripture from Isaiah 5 is difficult to preach on an easy Sunday. But with the current Israeli and Palestinian conflict has bubbled up in what will likely be war this weekend. It is downright hard. I glanced at my phone before worship, and my notice said that some 600-plus Israelis and some 300 Palestinians have already died. So I want to pause and say a few words that it is vital we remember when we read about ancient Israel in the Bible, it is not the same as the modern state of Israel. And that Christians, especially American Christians, quickly get out of their lane, good millennial phrase, out of their lane, when they start interpreting the Bible to talk about the current conflicts in Israel. Disciples have done especially good work at being nuanced and seeking justice for both Israelis and Palestinians in their 75-year conflict. And there are many resources and conversation partners in our denomination. If you're interested, I'd be happy to connect you with those resources. But in the meantime, we pray for healing, comfort, and an end to violence in the Holy Land. We, we pray for peace. But in the scripture for this morning, Isaiah is a prophet. We've often been told that prophets predict the future, which is not a very good understanding of what a prophet does. Much better is that a prophet is a fiery preacher who is so in tune with God that they're able to reflect like a mirror what God might say about a current situation, especially about a current injustice. And in Isaiah 5, we see a God who fiercely loves God's people, who has poured everything into them. And instead of producing useful grapes that God expected, useful grapes that begin to be turned to precious wine, God finds instead wild Rotten, useless grapes. And God is distraught. There is no use in gardening with these grapes. God will remove the hedge. Which means God is releasing these wild grapes back to wilderness. God will let the weeds creep in. The deer feast. The locust swarm trample uninhibited. This is because, as verse 7 says, God expected justice. And found bloodshed. God expected righteousness, but heard a cry, presumably based on the scripture, a cry from those who have been trampled on. 
a cry by those who are marginalized and forgotten. This song, like sacred written music written by all people, expresses one of the faces of God, the just face of God. God is never able to be fully described. We always are emphasizing one aspect, one face, and in so doing, we neglect others. That's why we keep a Bible of 66 books. That's why there's not one, but four accounts of Jesus. We need those different faces of God. We need those different emphases. And generally, generations will seek out that face that they weren't raised with. And while this may be suspicious to some, the reality is that each generation turns to Scripture, to find a face of God that is being forgotten in the culture around them. Earlier I mentioned that baby boomers, often raised by the greatest generation, had a harder, more disciplined, more rigorous experience growing up. I don't know how many boomers have told me that they didn't know that their parents loved them or were proud of them or only learned that quite later in life. It is a generational trait. They, in turn, were hungry for a message that God is love. And that is one of the faces of God. God is love. Incidentally, when Gen X was told that nothing much matters, when they were mired in cynicism, they found a face of God who reminded them that it matters how they treat their neighbors. And that is a face of God. How we treat one another matters. Millennials were told in so many ways that I cannot count that we are loved, special, and valuable. Now, incidentally... Millennials, I don't want this to feel like I'm picking on us, but we have higher rates of narcissism and a generally overinflated sense of importance, ability, and skill. Um, Two-thirds of us believe we have an above-average intellect. That means at least one-sixth of us are walking around self-deluded. <laughs> we are raised on this diet that God is love, And that the most important thing is how we treat our neighbor. So I believe that we are hungry now for this face of God that we find in Isaiah 5. Hungry for this God of justice. Hungry for a God who doesn't say we need to take care of the marginalized and trampled on. That's not enough. The problem with the vineyard was that there was marginalization and trampling in the first place. It's not just about changing hearts and minds of individuals, but the systems of society that lead to the marginalization and lead to the trampling. And with our emphasis on personal achievement and competitiveness, millennials were rarely taught that our collective body, that our institutions, that what we do together could ever give something good. But for those millennials who still show up at church, and we have some of them, I think that's part of the church they're looking for. 
They don't need church to be a booster shot to get them through another over-programmed week with their children. Sunday brunch would be better for that. It's not just that they need a reminder that they are loved without measure. Most of us still have our parents or our grandparents, or in our worst case, we could just go to 90s television. I love you, you love me. We've got that down. I believe that millennials long to see the face of God that says the type of society we create matters. And that a better way is not just possible, it is what God expects. Justice and forgiveness, mercy and righteousness. It's too early to see exactly how my generation will land on these topics. We will know much more in about a decade's time. And this might just be a mirror that I am holding up to myself instead of God. But if I were to guess... Our song might sound something like this. Jesus loves you, this you know, for the whole world told you so. Little one should not be crushed. Make a difference, church, you must. Yes, Jesus loves you. Yes, Jesus loves you. Yes, Jesus loves you. Make justice and righteousness. At least... That's my prayer, and that's my song as your token millennial pastor.